Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, if you would please. And actually, I'm even going to have you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, uh, because I kind of want to set the table for you there. Stand for the reading of God's Word, please, beginning in Isaiah chapter 7. And, and folks, there are some difficult names mentioned here, but I, but I want to ask you in your mind to make a mental note of some of these names because it's going to come into play later in the message. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ermalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it. For ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Now turn over to the very last verse of chapter 8. 8.22 And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we thank you that you are the answer for man's darkness. You sent your Son to be our Savior and Lord. 
to be the Messiah. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season we would focus upon Him more. That we would grow in our love and devotion to Him. Lord, we live in a dark world and there are people who need to know about Jesus. They're stumbling around in darkness every day around us. Help us to shine the light of Christ. Remembering that Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may recall the great northeast blackout of 2003 that plunged the northeastern United States, the Midwest, and parts of Canada into deep darkness. 45 million Americans were instantly in darkness. 10 million Canadians were in darkness. Making this the second biggest blackout in all of history. Trains and subways came to a standstill. Pumps went out in water pumping stations so that some areas even lost their clean drinking water. Gas stations couldn't pump gasoline. Cell phone communication went down in many areas. Airports were closed down. Almost all of New York State came to a standstill and Governor George Pataki declared a state of emergency. People were trapped in elevators all over New York City and those on subways were stranded in subway cars between stations. Air traffic was interrupted all over the nation due to flights out of the Northeast being canceled and the other flights being redirected. Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico, who formerly headed the Department of Energy, said that America was a superpower with a third world power grid. In Europe, they picked up on his statements and they began bragging and touting the fact that a blackout like that could never happen across Europe because their power grid was more stable and sophisticated than ours. Six weeks later, the same thing happened to them. Darkness. If you want to find darkness in the world today, you certainly don't have to weary yourself with a very long search. In fact, just about any click of your mouse on your computer will will take you to some sector in the world that is steeped in darkness and even corruption. As we look at Isaiah 9 today, we need to understand that our passage has for its context the the backdrop of darkness. But what we see in these seven verses in chapter 9 is that darkness doesn't have the final say. And folks, we need to realize that today. For the believer, darkness does not have the final say-so in your life. Aren't you grateful for that? God sends us a Savior. He doesn't merely send an economist or a military leader or a political leader. He sends us what we need the most. We need a Savior because our greatest problem is sin. 
Now what we're going to notice in these verses that we look at today is the fact that when we understand who Christ is and what he's done, he's more than sufficient to meet every need that we have. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the Savior's birth. The Savior's birth. In verse 6 of Isaiah 9 it says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given. 740 years ahead of time, Isaiah prophesied about the birth of a child. There's a chapel at the foot of the Italian Alps, and inside that chapel, all around the room, there are statues of Old Testament prophets. And if you look at each one of those statues perfectly, the placement of it and the way they have it turned, you would notice that each statue around the room is turned at a perfect angle so that that statue, as it were, would be looking at the statue of Christ down at the altar. Whoever designed that chapel and those statues surely understood what the Bible says, that all of the prophets point to Jesus Christ. And that's what Isaiah is doing here in our text. He is, he is over 700 years ahead of time pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pointing to the birth of the Savior. Now the first thing we need to see about this is, is that his birth says something about man's darkness. He is the answer to man's darkness. Now, folks, if you, if you want to understand really what's going on in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, really I've got to carry you all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 12. You see, there's a little bit of history that you and I need to understand so that we can understand the context here. And understanding the context here, I think we'll appreciate more of the words. We know that through the first 11 chapters of the book of Kings, Solomon, David's son, was the king. And Solomon started out his reign and his rule very well. He was very capable. He prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. Solomon got carried away though. He started making all of these alliances with foreign kings. And every time he would make an alliance, there would be a new bride that he would take. And so he ended up with these 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, can you imagine that? And then he started all of these massive building projects all over the land and somebody had to pay for it. And so he started taxing the people very heavily. Putting a burden of taxation on them to the point that they cried out for relief. And so when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam came to the throne, the people of Israel came to Rehoboam and they said, Rehoboam, if you will lessen the tax load that your dad put on us, we will be your happy and loyal subjects all the days of our lives. Rehoboam said, give me three days to think about it and I'll come back to you with an answer. In that three days, he went to the older uh, elders and he asked them about it and they said, uh, Rehoboam, they're exactly right. Nobody can live under the burden that Solomon put them under. Give them a little bit of relief and you will have them on your side for all the days of your reign. Well, then he went to the younger elders 
And they said, Rehoboam, don't have anything to do with that. You go back and tell them, if Solomon beats you with rods, I'm going to beat you with scorpions. You tell them the weight of my little finger on you is going to be heavier than the burden of the weight of Solomon's entire body. And that's the advice, tragically, that he went with. And so he came back and he reported that. And Jeroboam was the main representative of the people. And when they heard this, Jeroboam said, To your tents, Israel, let David look after his own house from here on out. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 12 that a very tragic thing happened in Israel. The united kingdom all of a sudden became the divided kingdom. Ten tribes were in the north, that's Israel, sometimes referred to as Ephraim, and two tribes in the south referred to as Judah. Jeroboam was king over the northern tribes of Israel. Rehoboam was king over the southern tribes of Israel. And Jeroboam did a a very foolish thing. He didn't want the people going back down to the southern kingdom where the temple was in Jerusalem and, and worshiping there and giving their sacrifices there because he said if they go back down to the temple at the various feast days in the year, their hearts are going to gravitate back toward Rehoboam. And so he set up an altar at Bethel, 11 miles north of Jerusalem. And he set up another altar at Dan in the northern portion of the northern kingdom. And he built an altar there. And of all the foolish things a man could do, you know what he put at the altar? He put a golden calf at each altar and said, Here are your gods, O Israel. Bow down and worship these golden calves. Sounds like what they did when they came out of Israel and how God was so displeased with it. Well, Jeroboam, from then on out, for the next decade upon decade, the people in the northern kingdom were steeped in idolatry. And finally, God got enough of it. And God said, I'm going to destroy the northern kingdom. And so what God did is he raised up the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the superpower of their day and God was going to raise up the Assyrians who would come against Israel and destroy them and God was going to deal with the northern kingdom that way. Because of their sin, because of their idolatry, he was simply going to wipe them out. And so sure enough, Assyria is on the rise to power led by a man named Tiglath-Pileser. Well, Pekah, the king of Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria, they got together and they said, we got to do something. Assyria is on the move. Let's go down to the southern kingdom and talk to Ahaz and get Ahaz to join together with the two of us in a coalition. In that way, Judah, Israel, and Syria will be in a threefold coalition against Assyria and maybe we'll be able to stop Tiglath-Pileser. Well, that's the backdrop to this text. Ahaz is not going to go along with with this union of the three. 
And he doesn't know what to do. And the people of Judah are shaking in fear. And so, and, and so what the, the king of Israel and the king of Syria are going to do, they're going to come down and, and defeat Ahaz and put their own puppet king on the throne who will join them in this threefold coalition. Isaiah goes out to meet Ahaz and he says, Ahaz, don't join this uh, don't join this coalition. You need to just stand still and wait and see the salvation of Jehovah God. Because God declared this coalition would not come to pass. He's the one who had raised up the Assyrians. And so what Ahaz did uh, when he found out about Peck and Rezin going to take him off the throne, he called up Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria of all things and said, you need to come and help me. Well, Tiglath-Pileser came in and he wiped them all out. And he especially wiped out the northern kingdom. And so the ten tribes of Israel, 722, they drop off the map of Old Testament history. You say, well, why is that so important to Isaiah chapter 9? Because look back at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9, and he talks about two regions that are going to see the light. What are those two regions? Naphtali and Zebulun. You know where Naphtali and Zebulun were? They were in the northern kingdom, the very area of Israel that the Assyrians came in against and wiped them out. They were a people from that time on who were in deep darkness. God is saying here there's going to be the birth of a Savior. That area will see the great light. Now, folks, where did Jesus' ministry concentrate for the most part? Up in that region, up in the northern portion of Galilee. And so the very area that had suffered so much at the hands of the Assyrians was going to be the very area that would see the work, the miracles, and hear the teaching of the Messiah. They would see the great light. Jesus is God's answer to man's deepest darkness. He's the answer to man's deepest darkness. Not only is he the answer to man's deepest darkness, but he's also the answer to man's burdens. Verse 4 here speaks of burdens. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. They had burdens on their back. Folks, time you get to the New Testament, the day of Jesus, there were so many religious regulations, nobody could live under those burdens. So many laws to keep. They'd had political burdens. In Moses' day, they had the burden of Egypt. In Isaiah's day, they had the burden of Assyria. In Jeremiah's day, they would have the burden of Babylon, who would carry the southern kingdom away into exile for 70 years. And then in Jesus' day, they would have the burden of Rome. So God's people there in Israel and Judah, about all they had known in their history was darkness and burdens. And he says that when he sends the Messiah, he's not only going to be the answer to our darkness, but also the answer to our burdens. And he wants them to think about the days of Midian, what God did in the days of Midian. 
What's he referring to there? He's referring to what we read about in the book of Judges. Remember the Midianites? Every time the people of Israel would gather their crops in and they would gather them together at the threshing floor to separate the chaff from the wheat, the Midianites would come in on them and raid the villages of Israel and steal all of their harvest. God appears to Gideon one day. And says, hell, almighty man of valor, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to lead my people against the Midianites. And that's exactly what Gideon did. And they defeated the Midianites. And what a day of joy, what a day of rejoicing it was when the burden of Midian was lifted off of them. Folks, in the most ultimate way, God is saying here that the Messiah... We'll lift our burden. What's the biggest burden you and I have? It's our sin. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. And into the burden of our sin, He sends His Son, the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that just dies for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Miracles, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with Him. Jesus removes the burden of sin. Are you in sin today? Are you lost in sin, estranged from a holy God? Jesus is the Savior of the world who can bear that sin, who can take that, that sin off of you and give you forgiveness. What other burdens do you face in your life? Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ is God's answer to man's darkness and his burdens. God didn't leave us in the condition that we were in. God is prophesying here more than 700 year, years ahead of time that He's going to send a Savior. Well, the second thing I want you to see with me this morning, again from verse 6, is the Savior's character. He says, therefore, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, there are two thoughts expressed there, not just one, but two. One phrase points out that he's the Son of Man, the other that he's the Son of God. In other words, first of all, he's the child that was born. He, he will be a child that will be fully human. God didn't send an angel. He sent a man. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus. John Phillips, one of the great Bible teachers of our day, says that the great mystery of the manger is that God should be able to translate deity into humanity without discarding the deity or distorting the humanity. How in the world did that happen? Well, Isaiah 7 tells us all about it. The virgin would conceive. Imagine that. Who ever heard of such a thing? A virgin conceive? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible tells us. That's important. He was born of a virgin to share in our humanity, but he was conceived of the Holy Spirit so as not to share in our sin nature. Born of a virgin. Son of man. 
And you and I can be grateful that he is the son of man because Hebrews 4 says because he was a man after he died on the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And Hebrews says because he was a man, he's our sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to walk in the shoes of a man because he's been there. He was a man. But he wasn't just a man. He was also deity. He's not just the son who was born. But he's also the son who was given. He's fully divine. Understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. John 1.1 says in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. From eternity past. Jesus was there with the Father. The Son of God. He's the God-man. The Son of God became flesh. The Son of God became flesh. He's the God-man. He he was never created, always existing. He's eternal and He's the Word who was with God, John says. Jesus is the Logos, the Word. And we know what a Word does. A Word communicates. Jesus came as the Word to explain the Father. Jesus came not only to redeem us, but also to reveal the Father's love. And so as humanity, Jesus came to identify with us. And as deity, he came to redeem us and reveal the Father to us. And so the distinctives here in verse 6 are very important to understand. For us, a child is born. That's his humanity. To us, a son is given. That's his deity. But that's his character. He's the God-man. Very unique. The only begotten of the Father. Now a third thing about him. I want you to see that Isaiah mentions here. Is the Savior's names. He says for to us a son is born. To, uh, uh, a child is born to us. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. Folks we know that names are important. In the Bible, a name stood for something. Parents today agonize for hours, maybe days or weeks, over what the the name of of their child is going to be, what they're going to name their child. They know that names are important. Well, names in the Bible are important. I think of Jacob. He was the heel grabber, the trickster, the deceiver. That's what the name Jacob means. But remember, he wrestled with God and prevailed, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel means one who is a prince with God. And so Jacob goes from being the deceiver, the heel grabber, to one who is a prince with God. Names matter. The names of God in the Bible matter. In Genesis 1, we meet God as Elohim. The, the, the name of God being the mighty creator. He's the mighty creator. David, the shepherd boy, he proclaimed that God is Jehovah Roy, the one who is his shepherd and looks after all of his needs. Abraham, remember when he was going to uh, offer Isaac and he looked and said there was a ram in the thicket and God said, don't, don't sacrifice Isaac, the ram in the thicket. 
He gave God a new name, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for all of my needs. New names given to God as people had different experiences with Him. Well, He's telling us here about what the names of this child will be, the Messiah who's born to take away all of our darkness and all of our burdens. And notice the first name that would be given to him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Some split these two up. Others, perhaps most, see a strong connection between the two Hebrew words. And so most translations will put those two names together. He's the Wonderful Counselor. His name is wonderful. It speaks of one who will be out of the ordinary. And as the only begotten Son of God, fully God, fully man, Jesus is certainly wonderful out of the ordinary in in that regard. His name shall be called Wonderful. He's the marvelous one, the astonishing one. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, he said in Exodus 18, and he, he said, be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. He's the marvelous one. The one who is wonderful. In his birth, he was wonderful. In his life, he was wonderful. In his death, he was wonderful. In his resurrection, he was wonderful. In his second coming one day, he will be wonderful. He's the wonderful counselor. You know, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, lean not upon your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. He's the counselor. And all we have to do to experience His counsel is simply open the the pages of the Bible. Open the pages of the Bible. Because on the pages of the Bible, God unfolds His wisdom and counsel to us. He's the wonderful counselor. Remember what Jesus said when He was talking to His disciples there in the upper room? He said, it's actually to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, you'll not get the helper. But when I go away, I'll pray to the Father and He'll send another of like nature and essence to me. And He will be your teacher and He will be your counselor. And He will give you the guidance that you need and the words that you will need to say. He is the wonderful counselor. This Christmas season, do you need counsel? You look in the yellow pages of about any phone book and see dozens and dozens of counselors listed. And I don't want to take away from that. Sometimes Christian counselors can help people in a great deal. But folks, don't ignore the one who is the wonderful counselor. If you need his wisdom this Christmas, go to his word. Bow before him. He's the wonderful counselor. Not only the wonderful counselor, but secondly, he goes on to say here, he's the mighty God. This is the name El Gabor. Deuteronomy 10, 17, Moses first applied it to God. He said, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And in Jeremiah 32, he says, oh Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. He's the mighty God. 
You see, he's the one who's not only able to give you his counsel and wisdom, but he can be at work in your life to bring that counsel to pass. Sometimes we know something we ought to do, but we don't have the strength to do it. Well, he not only gives us the wisdom of knowing what to do, but then gives us the strength to be able to do it because he's not only the wonderful counselor, but he's also the mighty God. I think of that occurrence in the New Testament where Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and they were crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up and Jesus was fast asleep down in the boat and the disciples were scared to death. They thought they were about to perish and they woke Jesus up and said, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to perish? And the Bible says Jesus got up and he looked at the wind and the waves and he said, peace be still and the wind and the waves became silent. And the disciples looked at him and looked at one another and they exclaimed, Who is this man that even even the very forces of nature obey his voice? He's the mighty God. Do you need strength? He can give that strength. He's the everlasting Father while being the mighty God. He's also approachable. You see, if if He was just described as a mighty God, you would think, boy, I can never get close to Him. But the Bible goes on to say here, He's the everlasting Father. A father loves his children and nurtures his children and takes care of them. He's personal. He's the everlasting Father. And as the everlasting Father, He is a Father who will never die and never leave you. We've had a lot of deaths this holiday season. Death leaves loved ones behind grieving. Well, the Bible says He'll never die. He's the everlasting Father. In Hebrews it says, You, Lord God, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. If you're looking for something lasting in your life, look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, not only is he a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, but a fourth name we see here is he's the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Folks, where do we need peace? We need peace on the vertical level and the horizontal level. First of all, vertically, we need peace with God. Isaiah 53 says, He laid all of his sin, all of your sin, all of my sin on him who knew no sin. We all had gone astray like sheep, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He's the one who reconciles us to God and gives us peace. You say, if you're not a Christian, the the Bible says you're an enmity enmity with God there's hostility there you're estranged from God but Jesus Christ when he reconciles us to God we come into a state of peace with God do you know that peace do you have Jesus in your heart as your savior do you know the peace that he brings you as the savior 
The next kind of peace we need, we need peace with one another on the horizontal level. Those who have peace with God can have peace on the horizontal level and peace in their own heart. The Bible says he gives a peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He told his disciples, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. The peace of this world can be shattered by an accident or by a bullet or by a bomb or even by the weather. But the peace that Jesus gives goes on and on and on. The world today is looking for peace. They asked Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Seminary, on one occasion, some people in the Middle East, some leaders... They said, Dr. Patterson, is the Middle East ever going to enjoy peace? He said, not until they know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Do you know the Prince of Peace? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so we see his birth, his character, and his names. Now notice from verse 7 what he goes on to say here. He says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see what he's saying there? With the government upon his shoulder. He will enjoy a reign supreme that will never come to an end. Never. Folks, through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I can have a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. And every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, his kingdom grows that much more. And one of these days, he's coming back. And the Bible says, all the kingdoms of this world will be made the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And his kingdom shall never end. People all over the world today are crying out for their government to come to an end. Because maybe they have a corrupt dictator in power. People in the United States are never before perhaps have we been so dissatisfied with our leaders. Uh, polls reveal that their uh, people are dissatisfied with, with the Congress, with the House and the Senate and the President. But of his reign and his rule, no one will ever be disappointed. He says here, his rule will be forever and ever and ever. It'll never come to an end. It'll never come to an end. The one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, one day will not just simply rule in your heart now, but he will rule on this earth and in heaven as the prince of peace forever and ever and ever. Folks, he's the one who is God's answer. 
I think of that little poem that somebody wrote years ago. One solitary life. Listen to this. He was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. Where he worked in a carpenter shop. Until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. 